Hi, this is Alan Kinney. I nerd out about learning, design, philosophy, and technology. Today, I'm interviewing Marcus Mears. Enjoy the show. Who are you? What do you do? Uh, how did you get into corporate education? Well, my name is Marcus Mears. Uh, I am a senior learning solutions architect uh, within a big HR tech organization. And uh, I guess like a learning solutions architect is uh, the way that it has played out in this role is equal parts program manager, project manager, and business consultant to make sure that training programs are aligned with overall business outcomes. And I kind of stumbled into this career path. Um, I originally went to grad school to become a painting and drawing professor. And while I was in school, I uh, was running a software training program for the University of Wisconsin and uh, just kind of learned that uh, there's nuance to how you train and deliver information to people that is different than teaching. So education and expanding people's knowledge, that's always been a big passion of mine. Uh, I've just found that moving into train the world of training and learning and development is a little bit more fulfilling for me because you just get to think a little bit more strategically about how you get one person to go from you know a certain skill set to a completely different one. And so getting into a corporate perspective has been really exciting because uh, you get to do that for entire departments or entire organizations sometimes. And so that's super fulfilling. And that's why I've stuck around instead of going back to, you know, academia and the art world. Yeah, same. I, well, I mean, I'm not from academia or art, but I, I relate to what you're saying. Um, I was curious, and that's one of the reasons why I definitely wanted to interview you and talk to you, comparing and contrasting real quick between academia and corporate for like the folks who are in one or, or might be in another. Uh, can you give us like just like a quick outline of what you found to be different uh, for the job? It's the nuance between teaching and training. I mean, I think that teaching, it's okay to be more focused on expanding knowledge and for that to be kind of this lifelong pursuit. And that in and of itself isn't a bad thing, but I think it gets conflated or training can often get conflated with teaching. And sure. I found that to be that dynamic to be really interesting. So what I mean by that is uh, training is typically going to be a lot more time bound, a lot more focused on a specific goal. And that may fit in a bigger picture of like a larger curriculum or business initiative. And so uh, I think that breaking it down to like a more discrete task, discrete deliverable, something that you're trying to build towards and having like very focused uh, designs to get to that goal is uh, I think the main difference. So uh, in academia, uh, it really is just about how do you build and contribute to this larger body of work um, rather than how do you enable this person to get from like one career path to another or to just like improve in their role or improve their jobs. Um, and I think that's even true for professional degrees. Um, it's possible to have this, uh, this focus on teaching to the subject rather than teaching to the job or the, the skill. Yeah. Um, there's a number of companies out there, startups that are addressing that specific thing. Um, you kind of see that at section uh, led, I, I believe it's led by Scott Galloway, but they mm -hmm. have these like micro courses that are focused um, on 
business school subjects, but go very directly into application on the job. Um, there's even Maven, which is, uh, I think it was like co-founded by Wes Cow, uh, yeah. looking at how do you take these classroom topics, but put them into a very specific deliverable. Um, so I think that that's going to be like the main difference between academia and the world of L&D and training. That's a, that's a good summation. Uh, I, I really like how you phrased that. Do you find that there is more of a focus in the corporate education realm on skills and competencies, or does that also happen under the hood in the academia as well? Yeah, I think, I think it's all happening at the same time. I think the emphasis is going to be on something that you can measure as a very clear de deliverable in the corporate world. And so I think skills and competencies is a is a way to get to that. Um, hmm. But there are other ways around that as well. You can basically go directly to the business stakeholders and ask what their expectations are of the program and start to build towards that. So it's not always skill and competencies. Um, maybe the bigger business objective is like quicker time to, uh, I guess, confidence or uh, competence in their role rather than like, I mean, there's going to be a skill building component to that, but maybe yeah. that's not the explicit business objective. So, um, so I think there's going to be like a little bit of nuance to that, but yeah, I think largely that's where it comes into play and building the skill of being a historian is just going to look different than building the skill of being a software developer. So they're going to have different learning arcs and different deliverables or activities, projects, outcomes that you have to look at, um, and I think it's kind of hard to take those very longitudinal goals in academia and build them into discrete bullet points. And so, um, yeah. I don't know, the arts yeah. being so near and dear to my heart, um, it's it's kind of hard to say in terms of like numbers or dollar amount or uh, specific skills that get uh, created, how to justify the value of an art program. But that's not to say that it's not valuable. So, uh, I mean, my experience going through several years of critiques and defending very important and emotional and personal work to a committee of like 20 academics <laughs> has given me really thick skin in the corporate world. Yeah. Um, I can stand in front of a group of people and talk about very important projects and for it to not feel so personal. And we can actually focus on the value and the outcomes that we're trying to deliver. That's a great skill to have. And I, like I find usually junior designers uh, might lack that, especially coming from a different background than, than the art world, as you're saying. Uh, I personally came from a philosophy background, so it was a, it was a little bit of a different experience for me. But I, I agree with your overall summation that like it, uh, philosophy has impacted my career in a positive way. But it's really hard to draw that line and say, like, here's the here's what was covered in class and here's what the outcome is. So that's, that's very interesting to me that you picked on that. I, I like, uh, I like where your head's at there. Um, so I'm curious, like based on that whole career spanning academia and where you're at today, uh, what do you think, like, what's the best or your favorite learning experience that you've seen either, you know, experienced or developed during that time period? Yeah. Um, it's not a typical I guess, classroom experience or workshop or whatever it is. Um, I think it's it, it's truly shaped how I view corporate learning in a very, 
I don't know, just experiential way. So uh, I was working on an e-learning course in a previous role and I had to, this was when I was like early in my career developing content and it had to go through an accessibility uh, review and it completely failed. Like it just bombed. And <laughs> I felt uh, really upset about it. I was like, what are they talking about? They're just trying to take out all the fun stuff in the course. And I had no idea what I was talking about. Um, I thought I knew what accessibility was. Um, I mean, I've grown up with, uh, with deaf parents. And so that's always been like front of mind for me. But when I actually went through the process of going to meetings with the accessibility team, and then I even went to a committee meeting with an accessibility council, it was just very humbling. I heard how a screen reader actually reads out the content and mm -hmm. it was just such a grating, awful experience. And that was not in line with what I wanted the learners to experience. I wanted to create like a very positive, easy to use aesthetic experience that communicated the, the learning objectives and the goals of the program. And so that was like the first part of it. Then going to the committee meeting, I, I just saw firsthand how people with like very different types of physical and cognitive uh, limitations uh, had to like pick up pieces of paper or to get to a podium to present on their next topic. And uh, I, I just remember sitting in the back of the room, just like tears in my eyes because I had just been so off base and I was just so wrong about it. So I think that was something that just kind of like has stuck with me. And those are very easy things that you can build into an employee's development. Um, yeah. Attending a committee meeting is can be a very powerful experience. Having them uh, just go do things outside of just a tra traditional course or workshop can be far more for formative than reading a book on accessibility or see seeing a PDF. Like that firsthand emotional and relational experience that you can get is far more powerful than anything we can hope to create as instructional designers. Absolutely. Like building that empathy is huge, regardless of who your audience is. And I think like, thank you for being vulnerable enough to share that. I feel right. like that's a, <laughs> it's, a, it's a huge learning. Like I can't underline it enough. If you think about it, like those folks who can't appreciate a, a learning class due to some kind of disability uh, or, or being less able even in, in that particular moment, yeah. uh, like that's, that's like learning lost, you know, and that's the whole goal is to try to get that. So I appreciate you sharing that. What, uh, so like, what steps did you take? What did you change after that, uh, that really changed your approach? Yeah, I figured out how to just really hone in on keyboard based navigation, and then come up with different modalities for how to deliver the content. So um, instead of you know, reading everything through a screen reader, uh, created an alternative version of the course that just had all of the high fidelity audio and use that as a way to get through the content and the key key concepts. And yeah. so just basically figured out ways that, again, I went to art school for a reason. Like I think that aesthetics matter significantly and just in terms of how we are willing to engage with something at a deep emotional and psychological level. So if what we were doing at that particular, with that particular course was focused on just delivering information then everything would have been fine to just use the screen reader in that particular case. But because it was such important content and because it was going to such a big audience, I wanted to make sure that everybody had the same level of positive aesthetic experiences as they possibly could have.
That's great. And I, I think that's the right way to approach it. Uh, you know, especially as, as content gets cheaper and easier to create, it's uh, it's there's less excuses for why not to start with everyone in mind and sort of build in that direction. Where do you where yeah. do you see things going in the future? Like what uh, what will learning and development look like like five ten years out? Yeah, um, I just read uh, prediction machines to help frame how we should think about uh, the way that AI is going to impact our industry. So. The authors, you know, Avi Goldfarb and everyone else who contributed to the book, talk about it in terms of the economics that this technology um, allows. So, one one aspect of this is how how this suddenly de-risks the content production and course creation for uh, LD practitioners. So, what I described uh, that positive aesthetic experience in multiple modalities mm. is going to take a fraction of the time to get to that point. And so what used to be a conversation or maybe a speed bump for people to say, well, we can't make multiple formats of this course because it's going to be, you know, it's going to add this many budget dollars and this much to the timeline on execution. And now that's yeah. not going to be a question anymore, or at least like it's going to be, you know, a smaller question. And so I think what that's going to lead to is uh, not necessarily risk taking, but uh, how do we how do we just be a little bit more adventurous and inclusive and focused on creating the best possible experience uh, using as many modalities as is necessary? Um, but I think it's also going to lead to not necessarily gatekeeping, but figuring out how we as L and D practitioners can actually be the experts and authorities in our particular domain. So I believe there's gonna be a little bit of a shift in how we get educated. Um, like going back to that point of what are we actually trying to have outcomes for and measure? It may yeah. not always be like skill development uh, because technically uh, if you just have skill development as your objective, that can have an uh, limitless timeline. But if what the business expects of our organization or of our department is, you know, a uh, faster time to uh, like job readiness, or we are going to upskill an entire division to a, or reskilling them to a completely different part of the company. Then yeah. those are going to be very different types of conversations with very different timelines and expectations. I mean, even with that conversation about how video has become easier to produce, graphic design has become easier to, um, you know, just generate images. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean those are high quality videos or high quality graphic graphics that people are creating. That's so fair. it's going to, yeah, it's going to like just increase the responsibility for us to be really good at the instructional principles and making sure that we're actually getting to those business outcomes in the most effective way possible using now far more tools in our arsenal than we've had before. And that's, you know, when, you know, legal departments are like, okay, it's all right for us to start using this internally and that kind of thing. I think still a ways off from that, but that doesn't mean it's not going to help us execute more quickly on those deliverables. Yeah, I think that's a very fair critique. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you've experienced the same thing, but I'll have uh, from time to time stakeholders be like, well, can we make it this into a TikTok like the kids do, right? Like, can we can we do a TikTok for the training? 
And uh, I think about it and, and the style and uh, training through TikTok is fine. I'm not knocking that. Uh, I think there, there's been some great, um, uh, great uh, uses of that in the past. But like in terms of the format and what you can possibly get done of that and comparing it to some of the more like thoughtful videos I've seen in the past when the technology wasn't nearly as available. Um, and, you know, like you can make fun of old, some of the older training videos of like, you know, the back in the day where... Vietnam, oh, yeah. bullet, you know, like World War II style or something. Uh, video training has been around forever. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I'm thinking like sometimes quantity uh, is not always useful in these sort of situations as well. Exactly. And and I think that's where our expertise is going to have to come into play, uh, because sometimes we may have a course requested of us. But in some cases, it's a matter of like changing a manager's approach to directing their team or maybe it's like people are underperforming because they have bad equipment or maybe the process needs to be updated um, or maybe it doesn't need to be a course maybe it's just a job aid um, there there are all these different things that we have that um, as as we become more ingrained in the business consulting side of the house uh, yeah. we have to figure out how do we actually get to the highest value with the lowest level of effort so that we can actually test and validate that this is actually working before we invest into developing a multi-course e-learning program or whatever the pre predetermined solution may be. So yeah. there's going to be an interesting confluence of uh, instructional design, marketing, psychology, UX practices. Like it's going to be uh, kind of an interesting future for, for our industry. Quick break to remind you that if you hear anything interesting today, please pause the show and write it down. Alternatively, check out back episodes at alan.substack.com. Now back to the show. Now I'll, I'll sort of flip this around a bit and, and ask you if you've ever been asked in the past to create bad training uh, and what happened. Yeah, uh, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's fair to classify things as bad training. Maybe it's like, a misguided objective. So sure. I think I'm I'm being intentionally yeah. provocative, but yeah, I, a misguided <laughs> objective. I like that better. Yeah. <laughs> so early in your career, you just basically want to prove yourself as an expert. So like, yeah, I've just delivered on this is what you asked for, and that learning experience of, okay, this is what they asked for. This is what they thought was going to happen, but that's not happening. So what's going on here? Like, what's the underlying cause? And I think that that early experience formed how I sort of moved into this type of role today, where now I'm much more focused on what exactly is the, the problem that we're trying to solve? Is it um, a matter of uh, going to like Kathy Moore's action mapping uh, yes. sort of questioning and I, yeah, just making sure that we're actually solving the right problem. Like, is this a matter of, uh, an issue with the culture? Is this an issue with the tools? Is this a people problem? Or is this truly like a skill and knowledge gap? And then once we determine if it's a skill and knowledge gap, then we can get into a little bit more detail on what's the best approach here? Like what type of skill are we trying to develop? Is this a very simple skill? Is this a complex skill? Is this something that uh, requires a lot, like a cohort? Do we need coaching? How are their managers going to be involved? And I think it basically opens up the, the conversation. Uh, the more you have those types of conversations, the more it opens up opportunities to be 
uh, included in some of those more like business focused uh, strategies. Uh, because ultimately, if you're just executing on uh, what people are asking you for without determining what the core problem is, then you're not going to be viewed as a valuable business partner because you're not actually delivering on the business. So, um, so yeah, that's that was kind of like the learning lesson. And since then, I've just taken a much more consultative approach of what exactly are we trying to accomplish here? Um, is it even a learning problem? Is this even like something that we're trying to to build. And sometimes learning is kind of the point of the business problem. Maybe it's, they want to add a capability. Maybe they need to diversify a portfolio to have like more revenue. And uh, my goal there is to make sure that it's as, you know, instructionally sound as possible. And it's uh, going to reach the right audience in terms of like communicating with uh, the right people who would be responsible for those things. That, that's a really good point. And I, I like how you've laid out the logic as to how you approach that. I, I'm curious, like in the L&D world, I've seen this question multiple times over the last 10 years or so of how does L&D get a seat at the table? And usually people are usually referring to one of two things. Either they're referring to seat at the table with the business uh, or they're meaning seat at the table with the C-suite where people are actually making decisions about mm. the business and whatnot. So I'm, I'm curious if you have, like from your perspective and where, where you're sitting, do you have a, a sort of an answer to that? Like how does L&D get that seat at the table? I think it really does have to be led by the leadership team. Uh, learning and skill development has to be a priority before that can even really be a conversation. But if you want it to be a bigger priority and you want to be viewed seriously, then you have to figure out what their expectations are. Um, I think it's pretty often that we focus on what is the ROI and that becomes a really daunting challenge because it's like, how do you quantify when and how somebody learned something? Like when is the exact moment that knowledge transfer occurred? Um, rather than going directly to the business partners and say, what do you expect of our program? How can I align with your metrics? How can I make sure that you're empowering and enabling your teams the way that you need them to be enabled? And that is a far more powerful approach than saying like, because of this learning methodology and the science that backs up this rationale, uh, this is why we are valuable. Uh, I mean, ultimately, that's gonna be so deep in the weeds that people aren't going to care about it. They just assume we are doing all of that they assume that we are doing instructionally sound design. They assume that we're being as efficient and effective as possible. And so part of that is like, what do we define as uh, metrics of quality within our teams? And then what are the value and impact metrics that the business cares about? And how do we contribute to those things? So the hard thing there is you can't always be accountable to uh, like, revenue or new clients won or things like that. So you can't yeah. necessarily make goals that you're not account that you can't control, but you can tie uh, dotted lines to all the things that you're impacting and show that you are thinking about those parts of the business and that you're trying to figure out ways to refine it and make it improved. Um, so I think that's going to be, you know, one of the main ways is actually just go and talk to the business stakeholders that you want to work with ask them what their metrics are. What can you do to reverse engineer that from a learning perspective and how do you enable that? If learning is even you know, a solution to that. 
So yeah. you, you don't necessarily want to shoehorn, you know, more courses into somebody's, you know, list yeah. of KPIs. Um, because ultimately, if you keep doing that, then you're just going to be viewed as adding to overhead. And that's not a good look. No, not at all. And I, I like how you, I really like how you started the interview today with empathy for the end user. And then we're ending today with empathy for the stakeholder. Uh, really completes the circle for me here. So I like that. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, at cognizant of time, wrapping up here real quick, any any last question, anything that you wish I had asked that you, uh, that you feel like you have a, a great answer for? Yeah, I think one of the things that I think becomes a, a challenge, especially for early instructional designers, is making sure that you're mapping the right learning solution to the problem. And so part of that is understanding what the business stakeholders care about but then the other part is, you know, just not to chase the flashy object. Uh, you don't necessarily have to start making AI generated graphics and videos and stuff like that and include that into your course. Uh, because again, going back to that problem of becoming a bigger contributor to overhead than a bigger contributor to value, try to figure out what exactly is the type of knowledge that we're trying to uh, develop and map that to the appropriate. Uh, learning intervention and know that it's going to be a rule of thumb. There's a lot of pseudoscience out there around learning styles and how and when people learn certain things. I think the best thing you can do is triangulate and then just monitor, evaluate, and refine over time. But if you're in the right neighborhood of delivering a PDF for just basic information and facts, rather than going into a full-blown video-based cohort and all these other uh, just unnecessarily complex learning mod modalities because you want to have a bigger portfolio in your quiver, then yeah. um, that's not going to be helpful for the learners or for the business. That's that's a really good point. And thank you for making it here. I know a fair amount of the people who listen to this or read my newsletter are newer to instructional design and that I wish I wish I had met you early in my career. I would have learned that lesson faster myself. <laughs> yeah, I, I wish I knew all these things. And that's all lessons from like very painful, uncomfortable conversations I've had to have in the past. So, well, thank you. Thank you very much for sharing that and also for spending time with me today. I... Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the invite and hope you have a good rest of the day. You too now.